One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. These cocktail bitters we're talking about started for medicinal nature. So you were pretty much people who thought they were living a good temperate life were actually you know, getting a little tipsy every morning by taking their bitters. Brad Parsons is well known for his contemporary cocktails, such as the Autumn Sweater. He talks with Milk Street about finding the best bitters, his favorite cocktails, and he also introduces us to the secret world of distillery cats. These are cats who work hard for a living and also have become social media celebrities. But first, we chat with reporter Amy Gutman about the businesswoman behind the champagne industry in France. Amy, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good. You spent some time in champagne country, and uh, I gather that things are changing. What's going on? Well, things are changing, and there's a really interesting story emerging there, which is all about a sort of renaissance happening with women in Champagne. So a lot of people are unaware of the fact that hundreds of years ago, the widows of Champagne are the ones who really made some of the Champagne houses there, the international empires that they are. Think of Veuve Clicquot, Bollinger, Pommery, except At that time, women had to take the helm because their husbands had to go off to fight in wars. Many of them didn't return. And so to keep the family businesses going and to keep the local economies alive, they had no choice but to take over these roles. Since that time, Champagne has really returned to a very male-dominant industry, as is most of the wine industry in France and elsewhere. Um, But that's changing 
You know, it's interesting that um, I did take French in high school and college, but I'd forgotten the term veuve. I mean, a veuve Clicquot means the widow Clicquot, right? Correct. So when you were in Champagne, you spoke to a couple of producers. Who were they and uh, what did they say? So I first met with Florian Esnac. She's a cellar master for Champagne Jacquard. Here she is. Champagne, it's always, if you listen to the, the stories, it's all about the history and this strong link also to the history of the widows or the history of women behind it. Florian was very unique in that she was always very determined to work in the industry, but she does not come from a familial background in in the wine industry, which is also quite refreshing because a lot of people that you meet in Champagne, Bordeaux, Burgundy, typically have a familial lineage of working in wine. But her champagne house, Jacquard, hired her chiefly because they felt that it would add to their authenticity as a brand that's looking to the future. In the case of Anne Malasagna, the other woman we talked to, who took over her family's five-generation family-owned and run champagne house, she took it over when she was a young woman in her 20s. Here's Anne. Uh, the story started in 1915, in the middle of the First World War. My great-grandfather, whose name was Armand Raphael Grazer, uh, decided to set a business here in Damry. And my great-grandfather ran the business until 1947. So when you spoke to Anne, what did she say about the process of becoming head of the Champagne House? How did she feel about it? What was it like personally for her? I think... Anne talks about taking over A.R. Lenoble as being a difficult decision. Her father never obliged her to take over. He simply said, it's a simple case of, you know, we're not making enough money, we're losing money, so we can't afford to pay the workers, so either I shut or one of the children takes over. It was, uh, it was unusual, um, but I think what is quite important to realize is that most of the women of my generation didn't took over because they had chosen it. It was not a choice. It was just because there was nobody else to take over. So it, it has been really difficult because I, I was young. I was a woman in a man world, and I had no credibility at all. Zero credibility. Anne knew that she was best placed to take over. She knew it would be a huge shift from her very comfortable lifestyle in Paris. I, I, it sounds so trite, but she really expressed the fact that it's, it was lonely at the helm. It was lonely at the top, having to make really tough decisions, not knowing whether these were the right calls, the wrong calls, just having to have faith in herself, despite the fact that all of her workers wanted to walk out right in the middle of the harvest. They insisted on speaking to her father and her father only, and her father was bedridden. So let's go back to Veuve Clicquot, Madame Clicquot. Mm -hmm. It's 1805. She's 27. Her husband dies. She takes over. And I gather she also developed part of the process in making champagne. Uh, so it wasn't just she was good at running the business. She actually knew something about the actual process, right? Correct. And, and it's important to understand that you know, you can't just simply take over a champagne house. It's not only about the business. The thing with champagne is it's very much about understanding the product, understanding the varietals, understanding how much can change. This is still an agricultural product. So weather is such a determining factor. There can be so many variables in every aspect of this business. Well, it's almost as if the champagne houses represent the old France, you know, where it's not about getting stuff done. It's about the process, right? Correct. They love the process. And France has had a hard time uh, modernizing its economy because of, of that. And so you're really telling the story of, of France coming into the 21st century by these women taking over champagne houses and, and introducing sort of results-oriented marketing and, and management, which is what all of France is in the process of doing right now, right? I think that's very true. And I think the fact is that the way the champagne industry operates is also the way much of rural France operates. People like to know who you are. They like to have daily conversations. You don't just go to the market and buy your cheese and bread. That's very true. You won't be sold a loaf of bread if you don't say hello. So 
before you go to the next tour of Champagne, you're gonna call me because I, I <laughs> absolutely. I, I'd love to suffer along with you, Amy. It's got to say, <laughs> <laughs> deal. Amy, thank you so much. You know, the world of Champagne is changing, as is France, and uh, women are leading the charge. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was reporter Amy Gutman in France reporting on the businesswomen behind Champagne. You can subscribe and also listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and also Spotify. Just subscribe and get all our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Where are you calling from? Los Angeles. That's a good place to eat. Yes. But let's talk about cooking. So how can we help you? Okay. So I have had trouble finding a cinnamon roll recipe that I like. For some reason, they always just taste so yeasty to me. Right. But over the holidays, I found a really great fried donut recipe that I like. And I'm wondering, can I just take that dough and roll it up and bake it in the cinnamon rolls? Sure. Is, is this a yeast dough or a baking powder dough? Yeah, it's a yeast dough. Yeah. It's just a different way of actually cooking them off, hot oil versus a hot oven. I think it would work fine. Yeah, but I wonder if the frying process sort of dulled the yeast flavor. I mean, I'm sure it would work perfectly fine, but the yeast might be stronger is all I'm saying. But you got the cinnamon filling and the glaze well, and all that stuff on top of it, I just wanted to throw man. out, I have a recipe for a cream biscuit dough, which is sort of based on the old James Beard. That's the James Beard recipe. Cream biscuit, yeah. which is heavy cream, flour, baking powder, and salt. a pinch of salt. Or you could leave out the salt. I make that and roll it out into a rectangle and put on all the you know, stuff you'd put in a sticky bun, the cinnamon, the nuts, the sugar, and roll it up and cut it crosswise and put it into a round cake pan and bake it. And it's pretty darn good, and there's no yeast in it. Well, full disclosure, these are vegan recipes I'm dealing with. Oh, you shouldn't have left that out. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, all right. So my recipe would not work for you. So if you like no. this donut, okay, I'm back with Chris. Yeah, yeah it, just, it works just, fine. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> the donut <laughs> recipe will work fine. It's like using a cake recipe and turning them into cupcakes. Right. It works fine. No problem. Yeah. Are basic yeast doughs kind of interchangeable, like, could I use pizza dough or basic bread dough, or are we getting... No. No, because pizza dough and bread doughs don't have as much fat in them. Right, and pizza dough has the least amount, so you don't want chewy... Right. So they won't be as tender. No, no, it's no a totally not at all, recipe. not at all. No, but, but a donut recipe would work, I think, yeah. for a No, right. give that a shot, but let us know, because I always like it when people adapt their recipe. Let us know if that yeah. works. Okay, Okay, thank thanks, you. Ashley. Thanks, Ashley. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Lexi calling from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Hi, Lexi. How can we help you today? So I had a question regarding elk meat. We live in North Idaho where my husband is lucky enough to participate in the archery hunt. In September, he harvested his first elk, and it was really exciting. Wow. <laughs> but needless to say, we have a surplus of elk meat. Uh, I've made a few things like shepherd's pie and <laughs> lots of elk chili, but... I was hoping that maybe you have some suggestions. I have a few questions. So since I deer hunt, yeah. did you bring this to a, a meat processor, I assume? He brought it to a processor. We packed it out. Meat processors give you a laundry list of stuff. So what kinds of cuts did you get back? Yeah, so we got all sorts of things. We definitely got steaks, right. roasts, and then they were even nice enough to offer summer sausage and salami. So we did a bit of that because that makes a lot. Yeah, we definitely have a lot of ground roast right. steaks. The problem is elk meat is delicious, but it's lean, like venison. Mm-hmm. So the backstrap, the loin, you cook very quickly, medium rare, and don't overcook it. And that's great. When you get into the roast, uh, which is the bulk of what you have, that's a little trickier. I would say low braises, you know, like a stew. If you're going to grind that meat, I would add fat to it 
actually processed all of our ground personally at home, and oh, good. Um, we cut in quite a bit of pork oh, good. fat and okay. beef fat. Okay, that's yeah. great. Julia Child used to lard lean cuts of meat, take fresh pork fat and put it in this thing that looks like a, what do you call it? Larding needle. Larding needle. But I wondered if you butterflied your roasts and layered them with bacon and roasted them. Would that work, Chris? It does help, but it's a lot of work. A lot of work. You can do that. That's what they used to do with lean meat. But, you know, it'll take half an hour to lard out a roast, but it's worth doing. But again, low and slow for the tough cuts. Very low, very slow, and then the, the really good cuts, quick and fast. I mean, I would use a lot of spices with this, okay. um, a lot of fresh herbs at the end. You want to add a lot of other flavor to it because of the leanness of the meat. When I did a ground mixture, I did a, a mixture of lots of garlic and chili peppers and cilantro yep. and mixed that idea. into it. So it's like it's taco-ready. <laughs> um, but it sounds like you're way ahead of us. You've added you've the fat back. You process your own ground meat. You've added the cilantro and the spices. The chili peppers. Yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. The roasts and backstraps and the leaner pieces are what I have a little bit less confidence in. And I love the idea that there's a larding method. That's just fantastic. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's yes, great. And it yes. sounds like you pretty much know what you're doing. Oh, but I, I love your, your comments and feedback. That's wonderful. And I want to let you know how much I've enjoyed you two on the Milk Street podcast. And oh, it's Thank been you. really fantastic. So, Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thank you, Lexi. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a conundrum, or if you just want to try to give us a call to stump us, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That number one more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Robert and Sophia Grote from Houston. How are you? Pretty good. So how can we help you? I'm not the greatest cook. Um, I'll just tell you right now. So we were making mac and cheese. And in the recipe, it says to use Ritz crackers. And so I've used that forever. So I ran out of Ritz crackers, and I thought, well, what could I use to substitute Ritz crackers? And I had some corn Chex Mix, because I just thought, (laughs) I didn't know why... Yeah, I didn't know what the Ritz crackers was used for. I can just tell you right now, this this did not end well, right? Uh, it did not. No. It, uh, sweet. Did so not so, so was this just a topping at the end when you finished baking it off, or was it mixed into the... It was mixed in. Oh. Oh. Yeah, it was mixed in with a cream of mushroom and sour cream and all that other stuff. So you, it's cream of mushroom soup and sour cream and cheeses and pasta and then Ritz crackers? Is that the recipe? Yes, 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 yes. So was this out of a 1956 issue of Good Housekeeping? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it's my mom's recipe. Okay, so. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Sarah. Now see? we get down to the bottom. Okay, of it. this was yes. from an old Betty so, Crocker cookbook. So wait cookbook. a minute, though, Robert. Do you love this recipe? Well, when I make it right and the way my mom makes it, yes. Okay, all right. Then <laughs> we're the way I made it with the, the corn check mix. No, no never again. Was, you could use yeah. breadcrumbs. Yeah, you could use bread. What do you think the point of these crackers were, these Ritz crackers in the recipe? I could yeah. see them on top as the crunch. I thought it added a little more, I guess, texture to it. It had some, like, a buttery flavor to it. I wonder if this is a recipe developed at the kitchens of Ritz crackers. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. It might be, actually. Yeah, I, think. I have no idea. Well, here's my suggestion. If you get just a very simple stovetop recipe for mac and cheese... You yes. do it from scratch. It's really take you 15 minutes. But uh, this is his mom's well, recipe. He loves it. He bear thinks with of mom me, and he makes bear it. Bear with me for just a minute. <laughs> you, you can produce something that's terrific, and you'll feel like you actually cooked. And then if you don't like it, go back to your mom's recipe. I just say stick with mom's and make sure you have Ritz crackers because <laughs> it makes you happy. Okay, okay. Thanks to both of you. Yeah. Okay. You know, All right. I'll keep using the mom, then I'll, I'll try that one. Yeah, so. just give my, my idea a shot. Anyway. Yes. Do it yes, once. Yes, yes, I will. Okay. Take care. Yes, Thanks okay. for calling. Thank you so much. Yeah. All Bye. right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Brad Parsons. I'll be chatting with Brad about which bitters make drinks better and how to know which ones to buy after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Brad Parsons loves to drink cocktails and also to write about them. He has written about the history and use of bitters going back to the 19th century. Today, he chats about his latest book, Distillery Cats. These are cats who guard the grain in distilleries. And he also gives us a few recipes for his favorite cocktails. Brad, how are you? I'm great. Let's start with bitters, because I'm obsessed with bitters, because I like old fashions. And so I've, I've been to the stores with hundreds of bitters, and uh, it's like a toy store for me. Uh, but you said something interesting, many things interesting in the book about bitters. Uh, that they were really patent medicines early on, but almost 50% alcohol, so people tend to just drink them. Is that how they got a start? 
Yeah, Bitters and Amaro, my, my second book, are sort of united in that both of these spirits started from medicinal nature. These cocktail bitters we're talking about, you kind of use in dashes and drops as a flavoring agent today, were previously used as a, a cure-all, and that was often abused by the claims of the product being a, a panacea for anything under the sun that ailed you, which obviously isn't correct. But because these were made of 50% plus alcohol, and they were then taken with a nip every morning, like you might pop a couple of Advil. So you were pretty much people who thought they were living a good temperate life or a good life of being healthy were actually you know, getting a little tipsy every morning by taking their bitters. So bitters did start off as a medicinal aid. And then, like most good things, are take a leap into cocktails and are consumed for commercially for pleasure at some point. So you also wrote that until Prohibition in the late 19, 1928 or whatever it was, there were hundreds of, of bitters for cocktails, and, and they were considered an essential element to a cocktail. You couldn't have a cocktail without bitters. Is that because of balance? Is that because people were trying to sell a lot of bitters? Uh, why was that? Well, the, the first written definition of the word cocktail is uh, you know spirits, water, sugar, Bitters. So bitters is an essential elemental ingredient in what makes a cocktail. And this is coming from the era, too, as you probably know, where there were daisies and flips and juleps and and cocktail was a category of drinks. Now we use it as a catch-all for everything. But pre-prohibition, there were just so many different brands around and many that aren't around anymore. And what prohibition did, it killed the profession of the bartenders. But many of the great bartenders who knew what they were doing, how to make great drinks, they went to Cuba, they went to Paris, they went to London, and started over there. So so bitters kind of fell by the wayside, and around 2008, 2009, this little bitters renaissance started to happen where there was only one commercial orange bitters probably readily available, or maybe two, and now there's dozens and dozens. So it's exciting, but it's pretty amazing to think how we, we went through that. So the pendulum has swung back to a lot of bitters, but I've seen some pretty exotic and crazy flavors out there. And if you've been to any bars recently, you've probably noticed there's just dozens and dozens of bottles. And the reality is they're still probably reaching for Angostura and Peixotes and orange bitters and not necessarily the more exotic flavors. So what defines Amaro? Yeah, well, Amaro is the Italian word for bitter, and these spirits were classically born in Italy, but there also is a European tradition in France and Germany and other countries of having a bitter or bittersweet digestif at the end of a meal. It wasn't until 2006, 7, 8 that we started seeing cocktails using Amaro, but they're really popular now. So, so you can have it neat at the end of a meal. In Italy, they sort of do, you know, the dolce, the dessert, then the coffee, then the amaro. While in the States, we kind of just clump it all together at the end of a meal. So if I was going to go to a liquor store and buy two or three kinds, or at least recognize two or three kinds of amaro, what, what were the two or three brands or, or types that I should know about? Yeah, so it gets a little tricky, and I know we, don't, we need another two hours to talk about, like, Campari is, to me, is an amaro. It's technically an aperitivo bitter. Um, Italians don't consider it an Amaro because it's consumed at the beginning of a meal, and it's often, it's rarely consumed on its own. But as a consumer, going to a bar, a liquor store, you're going to see Campari next to the Amaro. That's that bright red aperitif from Milan that's the backbone of a Negroni, Americano, a lot of these great drinks. Another one is Fernet Branca, which goes the other end of the spectrum. It's midnight black, very bitter, very herbal, has almost a toothpaste quality to it sometimes. But... That's really popular because that was one of the first Amaros that bartenders really geeked out about, um, you know, in the late 2000s. And that's uh, a shot of Fernet Branca was considered, a, they call it a bartender's handshake. So when you travel around the country, if you went to a bar and ordered one, people knew you were in the industry. And then I would say kind of another one is Averna, which is a classic Sicilian Amaro. I think it's about 150 years old, and that's much sweeter, uh, a little more citrus-forward, and very what I call a gateway Amaro. It's a great one to start with, but will lead you many different ways. And we're having that same fun era right now with, like we did with bitters, where more Italian imports are coming in, and there's a kind of a domestic Amaro boom happening where craft distillers are making their own American regional Amaros. 
Uh, Distillery Cats, that's a, yes. a, a book. for something completely uh, different. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about cats. Or, or there's booze associated with this because there are cocktail recipes. So let's start with the obvious question, and what is a distillery cat? Yeah, so a distillery cat is a working cat who lives at a distillery or brewery. I mean, I use the term, in the book I talk about distilleries and breweries, but you see them at vineyards as well. And essentially they're what you call mousers. They are taking care of, you know, where there is grain, um, barley, wheat, rye, there's mice, there's birds, there's pests. And the cats are protecting these expensive cash crops, so to speak, by keeping the mice in check. And it's kind of a thing you don't want to think about. Like, you know, I used to see a cat like at my college cafe or coffee shop and and it's there in it bodegas here in New York. You know, there's cats everywhere. And the reality is, you know, they're cute and everything, but they are, you know, killers, you know, and they're predators. And so they're taking care of the mice. But with distillery cats, what's happened, you know, there's a history of it. So I wrote a story about this a few years ago, which was the genesis of the book about looking at distillery cats, classic ones in Ireland and Scotland and in, in Ireland, for instance, like the the Guinness – there's a cat in the Guinness Book of World of Records who has the most kills. And there's another one that has a statue and one that and was – I think you wrote about Towser the Mouser. Towser the Mouser, yes. Yeah, something two, like 28,899 <laughs> mice, yes. Yes. Yeah, so that took a little creative math to get there. But then I, 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 I cross-reference that with what's going on with the craft distilling scene in America and breweries with the new look American distillery cat where they've really – some of them are working. Some of them are catching mice. But for the most part, they've become these unofficial brand ambassadors and mascots. So people are going to the breweries and the tap room and hanging out and taking pictures of the cat. And these, some of these cats have their own Instagram accounts, which is hilarious. If you did a blind, maybe you have um, a blind tasting of bourbons from Pappy Van Winkle down to Jim Beam or something. Do you notice huge differences between the bourbons or is this mostly marketing? No, I think the great quality ones will still taste amazing. But there are people who are very anti-Pappy Van Winkle just because of what it's become in terms of the price and and, the, and how hard it is to get. But a lot of times, like bourbons I like to drink are – I wind up I, – I unfortunately, I either really like them and then they become allocated you can't get or, or I didn't realize like, wow, the one I really like is an impossible one to find. But for the most part, even, you know, like two of the ones I used to love, like Elmer T. Lee, when he passed away – there was this stop production for a while. Now it's come back, but it's a little harder to find. And Elijah Craig recently rebranded yeah, their tw- – yeah. It's great, but they rebranded like their 12-year. There's no longer an age statement on. Like the Elijah Craig 12-year was just my gr- my go-to at home for old fashions or to put in my flask. And so I have a lot – yeah, but like but, – but wait, 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 wait. Put in your flask? <laughs> yeah. You wait, 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 fl- wait. What, what, what <laughs> flask? What does that mean? You walk around. You got a hip flask. We don't drive in New York. No, no. I for the most. I would when I I go to a lot of conferences, Southern Foodways Alliance, and right. places like that. And a flask is a must-have. You know, like for long bus rides, or it's a great way to make make friends quickly when you're out and about. Um, <laughs> is a standard cocktail should be an ounce and a half of booze, two ounces of booze, more than that, or it just depends on the cocktail. It it really depends on the cocktail. Normally, with a with an old fashioned type drink or a spirit forward drink, old fashioned I would do always do two ounces, uh, two right. ounces because because it's there's so little else in it. So right. if you're buying it, you feel cheated if it just is kind of not not much fluid in there. A drink like the Negroni, that's three ounces equal parts of the three different spirits: Campari, Vermouth, and and gin mixed together. A long drink like a gin and tonic or a rum and coke whiskey and soda, traditionally you would see the ratio be a one and a half spirit uh, to, to um, the mixer would be like three or four ounces after that or more. So, so yeah, it depends on the vessel, the drinking vessel and with the if it's spirit forward versus refreshing and if there's other spirits involved. Right. But if you're making drinks on your own, you're normally – like if you're coming up with new drinks like I do and others, um, you're – Almost always starting on a template riff, whether it's, you know, an old-fashioned Negroni, Manhattan, Margarita, and then taking things out, adding things in. So that's sort of where I start, where it's a template of a drink that works, and then you start taking it apart and putting it back together in a new way. So if you've invented drinks, uh, what's your best drink? And give us the formula. I had a drink called the Smith Streeter, which was a long, tall, cold, refreshing, bitter drink, and that had... Rye whiskey, Amaro Lucano, 
a little cold brew coffee in it, and then there was tonic and orange bitters. So it was a take on a little bit of an espresso and tonic, which I was seeing a lot, coffee bars mm. in the summer, um, making it a little boozy with some crushed ice. For bitters, the breakout drink of my own was this drink called the Autumn Sweater, which is uh, named after a Yola Tango song. And that had rye whiskey, Amaro Nonino, which is a sweet orange-centric Amaro, had a Verna, which is another southern Italian Amaro, had a little maple syrup, and then it had maple bitters and orange bitters. Um, and So it was kind of an old-fashioned, old but it was a very autumnal one. So uh, on your tombstone, rest in peace, autumn sweater. Brad I Parsons. like that. I take yeah. it, yeah. Bury me in an autumn sweater. Yeah. There you go. Brad, thank you so much. Uh, I love your book. Uh, great drinks and uh, great history, too. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Chris. Great yeah. to be on here with you. That was James Beard award-winning author and bitters enthusiast Brad Thomas Parsons. It's no surprise that medicine and alcohol used to be intimate friends. The elixirs of the 19th century were made from herbs steeped in alcohol. A nip or two was a pleasant way to start the day. So a classic case of one thing being disguised as another, a stiff drink posing as a medical remedy. The good news is that many studies now show that moderate drinking may indeed have positive health benefits. So enjoying a modest amount of alcohol may, in fact, be just what the doctor ordered. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchens at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. As you know, I went to Chiang Mai in Thailand uh, almost a year ago now, and uh, I went to the hot basil restaurant for people who like spicy food. That's the name of the restaurant. <laughs> I just love the name of it. Uh, not much to look at inside, sort of white formica-like tables. Great food. My favorite dish was stir-fried water spinach. Huge wok, uh, huge flames, like three feet high. It took maybe 90 seconds to cook the spinach. It was just amazing. It was spicy, but it was very fresh. It had some crunch. Uh, and so I brought the idea back here, and so what did we do with it? Well, you talked about the spinach. That's where we're going to start here. You had it with water spinach, which is traditional in Thai cooking. We're going to use bunch spinach here. That's spinach that still has a pretty significant stem left on it. We really love the contrast in the texture of the stem, which is kind of crisp, tender, and the very wilted leaves. So you want to make sure that you buy the spinach in a bunch, don't buy anything that's in a bag, or especially don't buy baby spinach. Baby spinach is not going to be uh, strong enough to hold up to this very high heat, and it doesn't have a long enough stem to get that contrast in textures that we really like here. This is a really bold, uh, simple dish, and it moves very, very fast. Actually, actually baby spinach is great because it tastes just like wet paper towels when you finish <laughs> stir-frying it. It's just exactly. awful. Yeah. Yum. Um, so when you are preparing your spinach and you really need to make sure you prepare everything in advance before you start cooking this, it moves so fast. You want to dry the spinach really, really well. A salad spinner is great for this. Um, if you don't have a salad spinner, really go over it with some paper towels to make sure it's really dry. Any moisture left on the leaves is going to splatter when you add this to this very hot oil. So uh, I assume we're not using a wok, although you could. Uh, this is done yeah. in a skillet, so what do we do? We are using a skillet, but you really want to make sure it's a large skillet. This is a lot of spinach. Because we move so fast, you want to get your sauce done first. This sauce is fish sauce, oyster sauce, sugar, and red pepper flakes. Whisk that together really quickly and set it aside. Heat the oil until it's just smoking. And this is a lot of oil. It starts with two tablespoons to start, and we're going to add two more tablespoons as we cook the spinach. To that, we add some garlic, but you want to make sure you pull it off the heat when you add the garlic or it's going to burn. And then we're going to add the spinach in batches. Because it's a lot of spinach, we need to cook it in three different batches. So when you add a batch, it's about 20 seconds. You want to take it only to the point where it's just wilted and then pull it off. Because we're cooking in batches, we want to make sure we kind of undercook the spinach. There's going to be a little bit of carryover cooking after we take it out of the pan. And then just repeat it with the second and third batch. And then total time is maybe about a minute and a half. So you really want to make sure everything's ready to go before you start. So how do you serve this? Obviously, you can just eat it as it is. It's delicious vegetable side dish. We like to serve it over a jasmine rice. We love the sauce in this, so it really soaks into that rice and flavors the rice. Quick food, a little bit spicy, and also it's really delicious. It's one of the best vegetable dishes ever. 
maybe five minutes from start to finish. Yeah. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for Thai stir-fried spinach at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to... Radio tips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to hear from our listeners uh, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Meredith from Illinois. Hi, Meredith from Illinois. How can we help you today? I have a problem because I cannot make risotto. It's either too liquidy or it's wallpaper paste. There's none of that delicious creaminess that I love and that I'm trying to mimic. How are you making it? What rice? How much rice? How much liquid? I know I use arboreal rice, but other than that, it's whatever liquid they say to use. That's what I use. And so are you adding most of the liquid at once? You're adding it very slowly over time? You're cooking in a Dutch oven? How are you doing it? I do cook in a Dutch oven. I try to add it slowly over time. 
sometimes I feel like I'm adding it too slowly and it never sets up. And are you stirring frequently? Oh, yeah. I stand there and stir. Well, how long is it taking you to do this? Half an hour, 40 minutes? Yeah. And it's entirely possible that I don't give it enough time to get creamy and then I get a little too antsy and put too much liquid in, like add, because usually every recipe says you need to add more liquid. Well, first of all, if you heat the liquid like the chicken stock or whatever you're using first, okay, in a separate saucepan, heat it up till it's just at a simmer. You can then start the recipe with about half the liquid in with the rice in the Dutch oven. And so okay. that'll save you some time because you don't have to stir a lot at the beginning. Once that cooks down, you shouldn't add more liquid till it gets really creamy and thick. Okay. And then you start adding more liquid. But don't add more liquid while it's still soupy. Just wait till that liquid is cooking oh. down and the starch is coming out. So you're probably adding liquid before you should. Can I just take you through the traditional method, which is to saute, not that I disagree with what Chris just said, but to saute some onions until they're softened and then add the rice. I think the ratio I usually do is a cup and a half of rice to about five cups of liquid. And I make sure the liquid is hot, like Chris said. You add the rice to the onions, you coat them with the oil. And actually, I usually start with like a half a cup of white wine to give it a bit of acidity. Add the white wine to it and let it gently simmer. You want bubbles, you know, simmering and stirring until the wine is absorbed. And then what they generally tell you to do is to add a half a cup of liquid at the time to keep it at a bare simmer, to stir it frequently until it's almost absorbed, and then you add the next half cup. So we agree. We do agree. But let me also ask you, how old is your rice? Oh, it's usually pretty fresh. Okay. Okay, that's good. You know, rice can get a little dried out. If you get to the point where the rice is tender and you really like it, but it's not that creamy, just add a little more liquid. And yeah, then, just keep going. Yeah, just but, add but just a little. Make sure it really cooks down before you add more, and then I think you'd be good. Right. At any rate, hopefully that helped. Oh, I think definitely. I think I've been adding too much liquid too quickly. Yes. I haven't been warming it, and so hopefully I will no longer have to fear risotto. And like Yay. Tom Sawyer, you have to find somebody else to do the stirring. <laughs> yes. yes. That's very uh, important. That's what I, children I are for, yes. or husbands. Yes. Oh, that's what they're for. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. All right, Meredith, thank Thanks you so for calling. much. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to Most Your Radio. Who's calling? This is Willie Reinders. From Austin, Texas. Oh, okay. love Austin. Nice town. Yes. Yes, it is. How can we help you today? I have become very fond of creating beef wellingtons. But each time that I have done this, I end up with the dough at the bottom of the wellington, right. never really cooking through. It ends up being wet. So when I try to carve it to serve it, it's not as elegant as it could be. Well, can you just tell us very briefly how you make your beef wellington? Okay. I make a mushroom du soleil that I put around the wellington. I try to keep the wellington tied and chilled till just before I wrap it so that I have a uniform diameter. You mean the beef filet, yeah. Yes. And then uh, put the prosciutto around the du soleil and then put the pastry around that. And then, you know, bake it through to completion. Do you chill it again after you've wrapped it? No. That might be a good idea. And on what shelf do you bake it? I usually bake it on the top shelf. I would bake it on the bottom shelf. Yeah, because the bottom will get crispier. Chilling it also would help. One last question. Is the bottom soggy before you cut into it? Like it comes out of the oven, it's soggy? Or is it soggy once the juices start coming out of the the No, it seems to come out of the oven soggy. It never really crisps up. And that's been very frustrating for me. I think Sarah's got the answer. Bottom rack of the oven, and that should actually crisp up the bottom nicely. And oven temp at the least 425? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And make sure that you chill it after you wrap it so that that dough can set up again. Well, good for you. I'm glad there's someone still making beef. Yeah, I want to come to your house. When you come to think of it, it's just a few steps and and it's just an impressive thing to start. Absolutely. No, you know what? I think next holiday, I'm going to put that back on the menu. Yes. Thank you. All right. Anyway, thanks for calling. Thanks, Willie. Good luck. Yes. You bet. Thanks for your advice. Sure. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Call us at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or you can send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Catherine. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Hey, Catherine. How can we help you? So I called because I am frustrated with the results that I'm getting when I make pies with cream fillings. They always taste great. 
but they look terrible on the plate. They don't seem to slice cleanly. So when you slice into it, the it collapses a little bit? It doesn't stand up properly? Yeah, so the taste is fine, but then when I slice into it, it sort of just collapses on the yeah. plate, sort well, of ends up looking like a puddle. Cornstarch is very difficult to work with. There are two problems. If you over-whisk it while you're heating up the filling, that agitation can destroy its thickening ability or at least cut it back. And if you overheat the filling, that also can damage the thickening power of cornstarch. So usually a cornstarch filling, you want to get to about 175 if you measure it on a thermometer. And you don't want to over-whisk it. You want to be pretty gentle when you're heating that up. In fact, use a silicone spatula or something uh, and don't whisk too hard. Use the whisk gently. I would watch those two things. So I had a question. None of the recipes that I've looked at have mentioned using gelatin as a thickener. And I'm wondering if that's something that could add to the ability of the filling to really set up. Because I'm, I'm careful to chill the filling for as long as the recipe Yeah, says. I was going to ask, how long are you letting it set? Yeah, so usually the recipes will say something like chill at least three hours and up to 12 hours. And I usually try to aim for the long end of yeah, that. Yeah, that's plenty. If, it lo- if it's at least six hours, you're fine. I don't think that's a problem. Yeah, you could you could use it's like using belt and suspenders. You could <laughs> you're a pessimist. Well, right. So that's just what I'm wondering. Now, gelatin is not really the most fashionable recipe ingredient right now. Oh, it doesn't matter. Know. It's got its uses. But I'm wondering, like, if I were going to use it, at what stage of the process would I? Well, be? first of all, they're different kinds, and the box, uh, the sure gel that it's pink, I think, is mm-hmm. used when you're going to heat it. Because some gelatin's cold. You're not supposed to heat it because it'll destroy its thickening. I think it's a pink box or it has pink on it, and that can be used for hot purposes. So you have to get the right kind of gelatin to start with. And I would think you could just whisk it in towards the end when you're ready to put it in the filling. The only thing about gelatin, from my point of view, is it can end up giving you a bouncy end result. Right. That's what I'm worried about. I don't want to make the texture strange. These are good recipes. They taste great, and I just am not getting quite the slice that I want. I think your problem is the cornstarch. I think you're not heating it up to the right level or you're over-whisking it. So okay, use the, so use the instant thermometer, thermometer and be very gentle about stirring it. Use a silicone spatula. Okay. I think that'll help. Yeah. Then if you okay. want, try the gelatin. Make sure it's the heat one and use a very small amount at the end and just stir it in. Try. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Okay, take care. All right, Catherine. Okay. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to use saffron and make it easier to disperse the flavor and color in dishes. You know, the warm aroma and savor of saffron is great on things like roast chicken or fish, but it can be pretty hard to disperse the flavor. The problem is the threads don't always crumble well. So here's a solution. Grind the saffron into the salt used to flavor the dish. A pinch is all you need, and a teaspoon or two of kosher salt. Grind in a spice grinder, and then you have a wonderful base salt to flavor any chicken. By the way, you can also enhance the color by mixing in a half teaspoon of turmeric. The roast chicken will be a rich, golden hue. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're headed over to Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge to chat with wine expert Stephen Muse. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. Uh, we're standing here with many bottles of wine, some paraphernalia. This must be a fairly complicated topic. Well, uh, at least it's, it's, it's got several pieces, Chris, because we're going to talk about something that I like to call operator error today. And um, this is a segment that was prompted by a conversation that you and I had at the dinner table one night about why it is that some wine coming right out of the bottle seems more available, maybe that's one way to put it, than others. My observation that quality wine isn't always just ready to go when you pull the cork. So we're going to talk about five different ways in which you can make a contribution to making the wine what it should be, and conversely, those things that you can do wrong. Or, or to paraphrase operator error, the five things Chris Kimball did wrong at the <laughs> dinner party. <laughs> Let's just be specific. So what's number one? All right. So the first one is going to be temperature, right? Now, this seems like a complicated subject. People wonder, do I need to take out a thermometer? Do I? No, 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 no. You don't need to do any of this. I've got a really simple rule for getting you started in the ballpark. 
what I tell people is put your hand around the bottle, hold the, hold the barrel of the bottle in your hand, and if it feels as you would want a cool glass of water to feel, then you are in the neighborhood, either for white wine or for red. Okay. So that's the starting point. Now, if you find that the wine needs to be a little warmer, you can always dip it briefly into a bucket of lukewarm water, and that will bring it up a few degrees very quickly. Or if you find it's not quite cool enough, you can always just put it on ice. The idea is that any of these remedies are just for a few minutes, because you're really only talking about a few degrees either way, to cool it down or to warm it up a little bit. It makes a huge difference to get it right. Okay, so operator error number one, temperature. Number two, aeration. You and I have talked about this a lot, right? Particularly with respect to quality wines and many natural wines, they've been made in the absence of oxygen. And um, the reason that they do this is because they want to cut down on the amount of sulfur dioxide that's necessary to keep the wine sound in the bottle. So they tend to come out of the bottle starved for oxygen. And they really need a good, robust aeration to be at their best. So I, I, have, a, I have a little glass of wine here for you to taste. We're going to do a little demo here to show you what kind of a difference it can make to give the wine in what we call an aerating decant. So you've got a little, a little Bordeaux here. Stephen, you just poured the smallest pour in the history of wine. This is like a, an eighth of an ounce. Anyway. We're going to get to that subject, too. Okay. It's a nice little glass of wine, Chris, but I'm going to make it better because I'm going to take this bottle, I'm going to upend it into a big roomy glass pitcher. It's the kind of pitcher you'd get in a beer garden or something. It doesn't have to be anything <laughs> fancy. And I'm going to let it slosh and gurgle around. We're going to flush it with oxygen, and I think you're going to get something considerably different in the next glass. I have to say, watching you upend an expensive bottle of Bordeaux in, into a beer pitcher doesn't give me a lot of confidence <laughs> <laughs> in the providence of your education in wine, but we'll try. That is actually substantially different. Mm -hmm. Can you say how? Yeah, it, it doesn't have the harsh alcohol mm -hmm. to it. Uh, it's, it's smoother, it's a little more complex, but it doesn't have the harshness. Right. Uh, decanting doesn't correct every fault in wine, but it is an amazing trick, and once you know it, you'll practice it with red wine and with white to very, very good effect. Let's move on. We're going to go to the subject of the stingy pour, Chris. That you, were just, you were just complaining about, right? So here is why the pour is important. You need room in a glass for the wine to volatize its aromatics and for those aromatics to be collected in the space above the wine. When you put too much wine in the glass, there's no room for this to happen. So especially when you're tasting wine, maybe in a little more serious way, it's important to have a roomy glass with a rounded bowl and kind of a tulip-shaped tapering top, and you just put a small amount of wine. And so when you're sitting at the table, it's not like you have to call the waiter over <laughs> to refill your glass. Just give people an ounce or two. I, my rule of thumb is about one-fifth the volume of the glass. So in some cases, it might just be an ounce and a half or two ounces. It really makes a difference in the way that the aromatics become available to you, and it's, and it's significant. And, and so it makes you feel like you can have eight or nine glasses of wine if it's, if it's an ounce or two. Okay. So the other reason that the size of the pour is really important, Chris, is that when there's less wine in the glass, there's more chance that you're going to take in some air when you sip. And this is very important because air is what will help move those flavor molecules into the nasal cavity where you get a big extra hit of flavor. Yeah, and in fact, 90% of taste comes from smell. Right, so you so want to get it up there. You want to get it up there. Okay. okay. So the final point, Chris, and I really think might be the most important thing of all is for our listeners to understand how important it is to keep an open mind. When you buy commercial mass-produced wine, there are never any surprises. Those wines are made to come out of the bottle the same way every single time you open one. Quality wine made by winemakers who are doing interesting things, it's a little different story. You may be confronted with aromas or flavors or textures that are new to you. 
And this does not mean that you've got a faulty bottle. It can just mean that you need a decant, you need a different pour, or the temperature isn't right. But it's very important to be open to the fact that what you get when you open a bottle of wine may not be exactly what you expect. Just like life. You expect one thing, you get something else. Last question, very quickly. You have a big red wine. You have a Bordeaux, a Pinot, yeah. whatever. Uh, and the cool glass of water th throws me a little bit. I can understand you don't want it really warm. But would, would a really big wine you want at a slightly higher temperature than you'd want, uh, you know, uh, something less right. mature? Well, it's a good question because, particularly because today, wines are bigger and more alcoholic and more tannic than they have almost ever been. So the answer is yes. Keep in mind that the more tannin, the more body, and the more alcohol the wine has, the more likely it's going to need to be served a little warmer. And the lighter and fresher and zippier the wine is, the red wine is, the more happy it will be with a little bit of a chill on it. Stephen, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you've now annotated my five operator errors at the dinner party. But next time, when I have you over, I will do it right. Thank you. That was wine expert Stephen Muse. You know, I once met an American in London married to a well-known cookbook author. His philosophy of life was simple. Drink a glass of champagne every day. So here are my two favorite rules to live by. One, don't worry about what people think. They don't do it very often. And then my favorite... Nobody cares if you can't sing. Just get up and sing anyway. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to our site, 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. 